Welcome back to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. The best stories ever written, what we consider the classics, are fertile ground for reimagining by contemporary authors that speak to new audiences. My guests today are Gary Witta and Derek Robertson, writer and artist, respectively, of Oliver, a 12-part series debuting on January 23rd and published through Image Comics. The story is a new take on the Charles Dickens classic, Oliver. In this reimagining, an orphan fights to liberate a post-apocalyptic, war-ravaged England while searching for the truth about his own mysterious origins. Gary Witta is an award-winning screenwriter. His work includes co-writing Rogue One, a Star Wars story, The Book of Eli, starring Denzel Washington, as well as writing for the animated series Star Wars Rebels. His longtime friend and artistic collaborator Derek Robertson is known for his work on the award-winning Transmetropolitan, The Boys and Happy. Their new series, Oliver, has been 15 years in the making. We learn today why the comic was in development so long, who introduced steampunk elements into the story and why, and how they managed to make each of the Clone War veterans that appear in Oliver distinct. And we find out from Gary and Derek which technology considered obsolete they miss the most. This episode is sponsored by The Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. And now, please join me with Gary Witta and Derek Robertson, here now on Creator Talks. Gary, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, thanks for having me. And Derek. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Gary, you are the former editor-in-chief of PC Gamer. That's right. And I spoke to Karen Gillen on my podcast a little while back, who said he used to work there. Did you ever work with Karen? Karen Gillen or Kieran Gillen? Because those are two very different people. <laughs> Kieran Gillen. Kieran Gillen. Karen Gillen used to be uh, Doctor Who's assistant. I, yeah, think, okay. I think you might be thinking of Kieran. <laughs> We should have had this conversation before, Gary. I know. If Kieran was, <laughs> was ever Doctor Who's assistant, he's kept that quiet. <laughs> he said he'll answer to either. <laughs> but yeah, Kieran and I have, uh, I guess, somewhat similar backgrounds in that we both used to work uh, in, the, in the video gaming world. Do you ever work together on anything? Oh, I don't think so. In fact, I think we might actually have worked on rival publications at one point, but we uh. never, our paths never really crossed. It's funny how that works. I had this weird situation where I've kind of had two consecutive careers back to back. I worked in the video gaming world as a journalist for many years, and now I do this. And I'm not the only person to have made that transition. A few others have made it as well, but they're generally tend to be people that I didn't know from my former career, but our paths have crossed in this new one. Well, you and Gary, your paths have crossed, obviously, and you're still both in the San Francisco area, yes? Yeah, I'm a, I live up in wine country, but I'm only about an hour or so away from Gary. Closer than me. I've been there <laughs> to San Francisco a couple of times on business. I've seen the Golden Gate Bridge. I've seen Alcatraz from the outside. Oh, you should take that tour. It's fantastic. I just didn't have time. I saw it from a boat, and then I saw Angel Island, I think, and Pier 39, the usual tourist places. When you get there, for each of you, where do you like to go off the beaten path in the San Francisco Bay Area? Well, if I tell you, then all the tourists will start going. <laughs> I'm kind of the worst person to ask that as well, because I'm a total homebody. I would just say my house. I could, I could tell you... I could tell you <laughs> I can tell you the off-the-beaten-path parts of my house where I like to go. Um, but I'm I, one of the reasons why I like doing the job that I do is I get to stay home a lot uh, with my family, and I get to wear sweatpants to work every day. 
It's uh, anytime I have to put on what my wife calls big boy pants and leave the house and go to a meeting or go shopping or whatever, I'm never happy until I get back home. It's a good question, though. Let me think if I have an answer for you by the end of the podcast, it's something I need to chew on in well, terms I've of favorite places. But Derek time. is right. I'd be I'd be loath to to tell you about a place that I really like that's really secret and then and then find out that this is like a hit podcast or something and then everyone's showing up there. Yeah, <laughs> I used to live in San Francisco for many years. One of the things that I really like is. Uh, while people are, tend to gravitate towards Fisherman's Wharf and that area, actually the outer sunset, as you head towards the beach, has a lot of nice little pockets and neighborhoods with uh, more local bars and good restaurants and things like that. So that's where I would say, hey, uh, get away from the touristy stuff and go find as many local places as possible. You'll, you won't regret it. Good. That's what I like to do anyway when I go traveling. I don't want to hit all the tourist places. They're too crowded. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're overpriced and they gouge you for parking. And you get out to the outer sunset by Golden Gate Park, much nicer. A much better representation of San Francisco, in my opinion. But, of course, it's changed a lot since I moved away. I want to talk a bit about the inspiration for the book, Oliver. Gary, you chose Charles Dickens' Oliver as the foundation for this comic coming out through Image. You're a big fan of the classics. And I understand, Gary, that you like Shakespeare plays set in a contemporary context. That's kind of where it happened to me, you know, growing up in the, I don't know what it, how different or similar it might be in the U.S. What's considered the kind of the literary canon of classics might not be exactly the same, but certainly growing up the public school system in England, you are kind of required to read, you know, the great English classics. You read a lot of Shakespeare, even though it makes very little sense to you. Obviously, the language is somewhat impenetrable, but you, you got to do it. You, they make you read every single one of them. And I ended up coming away uh, as a fan of quite a few. I really like Macbeth. Uh, partly because I, God knows how this happened, but our teacher was allowed, maybe she wasn't allowed, but she just did it. Our teacher was allowed to show us uh, the Roman Polanski version of Macbeth, which is extremely gory and very, very deeply unpleasant and not a movie for kids uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But because it's Shakespeare, you, I guess you kind of get a free pass on on how awful it is. And I kind of got into Shakespeare that way and became a fan of the classics. And of course, the other thing they make you read is Dickens. I would argue that Dickens is second only to Shakespeare in what's considered kind of the great British literary canon. And years later, as I was looking for projects to do and thinking about what's out there, I really enjoy it when when they take Shakespeare stories and recast them in a different light, like a contemporary light. There's a version of um, King Lear right now on Amazon that uh, is, I think it's set during the First World War, uh, that's really, really interesting. And uh, Patrick Stewart did a version of I think either Hamlet or Macbeth that was kind of set in kind of a fictional uh, Soviet state that was really, really interesting. And I just like it when they take those stories and find different ways to kind of tell them anew. You know, not everything has to be told in the original Elizabethan setting. And then, of course, you know, there's even things like, you know, you think about Hollywood does it a lot, you know, like 10 Things I Hate About You uh, is, of course, The Taming of the Shrew. And Clueless is Jane Austen's Emma. And I just love it when they when they kind of reach back into kind of the annals of kind of great literary history and find ways to kind of refresh those stories. Because, you know, the truly great stories are truly great because there is something universal and timeless. And they, they speak to the human condition in a way that doesn't age out. The timeliness or the, or the relevance of the stories uh, never expire. And so that's what makes them truly great. And they last forever. And you're able to kind of retell them and retell them in whatever is the contemporary time frame of our era. And I was thinking about, wouldn't it be, it'd be fun to do something like that? I'd like to kind of take a literary classic and kind of redo it, but redo it in a way that maybe would not be expected. And I was looking, I felt like Shakespeare had been largely exhausted 
Um, most of the good Shakespeare ones, I think, have, have already been well trodden over. And so I started looking at Dickens and I started looking and, and I was thinking about what are the ones they made us read in school? Like, what are the ones I already know? And I knew Oliver Twist and I was a big fan of, you know, many of the movie versions. And, you know, I remember reading the original book back when I was a kid. And it occurred to me that I also wanted to tell, this is actually even pre-Book of Eli, but I'd been wanting to tell a post-apocalyptic story for a while. And it occurred to me that the kind of the trappings and the social conditions of Dickensian London, you know, with a lot of poverty and you essentially have this entire social underclass, which has been forgotten about by, you know, the more privileged members of society, uh, struck me as not terribly different from, you know, how you might do the world building for a post-apocalyptic world, you know, where you've got, you know, kind of the people that live, uh, you know, below the waterline and the, the kind of the forgotten people, the mutants or whatever, and um, started kind of playing around with that. Went back and reread the book and tried to find parallels, kind of social parallels and thematic parallels between what Dickens was talking about and what, what, what I might want to talk about in a futuristic, more post-apocalyptic narrative and, and found a way to kind of marry the two. And that's, that's really how it started. I've never read Oliver Twist in school or after. I haven't seen the musical or watched the movies until today. I actually, uh, I did watch Oliver Twist today. It's an old version, Dickie Moore, 1933 pre-code. Okay. Probably not the best, uh, <laughs> but it got the job done. I don't know what would be considered the best version. The music was very popular. I think the music was probably the best known version. I think the most recent Roman Polanski one was really well done. Uh, very well shot. And then there's a classic one where the guy who played Fagin sort of stole the show. And I think that was in the 40s, though. It's also a black and white one. Well, when I have more time, I want to go back and watch some of those because I needed to see a more expanded version than what I had seen today. The only Dickens I've read it has been A Christmas Carol. I have an unabridged edition of it. It's signed by his last surviving great-grandson, Cedric Charles Dickens. I actually oh, got, wow. yeah, I got this book at uh, a Strawbridge and Clothier store in Philadelphia back in the 80s. They have a Christmas Carol display. They had the books for sale and also had his cookbook for sale. So uh, <laughs> that's as close as I've gotten to it. But I thought that was kind of neat. Derek, have you seen most of the films about Oliver or the musical? You know, it's funny. I, I saw the musical when I was very young. I haven't watched it again recently because it's a completely different tone than what I'm trying to do with the visuals on Oliver. So I was drawn more to like the Polanski version because the cover spoke to me and it looked like a good period piece and, and have the, the kind of palette that I was imagining for the, the what I would ask of my brilliant colors, Diego Rodriguez, when we started collaborating there. So those versions were more, spoke more to me than like what the musical would, because the difference between what Gary and I are doing is that most of Oliver twists and the adaptations focus on Oliver as a little boy throughout the whole thing, whereas our Oliver is only a little boy for the first issue. He actually grows into like a young man uh, within the first four issues. That gives it a different dynamic entirely. Well, it's been a long road to get this book published the way you want it with whom you want it to be published through. It was conceived around, I think, 2004. Gary, you did it as a movie spec script, but decided that this is better suited for the pacing and structure of a comic book. It wasn't until several years later, around 2010, you found the right publisher, finally, Image, because it allowed you to retain your ownership of the project. Back in 2012, you announced it at San Diego 
And you talked about a trilogy of like four issue arcs. So did you delay the release from 2012, 2013 due to other projects that came up? And what were those projects? I can't speak for Derek. Derek will, will tell you about all the amazing projects that have been keeping him busy. With me, it was a case actually largely I, I've been busy myself, but kind of waiting for Derek to kind of have yeah. the time available to really uh, devote to this because he has been extraordinarily busy, as you've seen with all of his uh, comics being turned into TV shows, and he's uh, become a great success in the years that we've known each other. Which, which I, by the way, um, ascribe only slightly, partially due to his association with me. I'm sure he did did quite a bit of it himself, but obviously hanging out with me is the fast track to success these days. So uh, I congratulate Derek on on knowing me and uh, having met me. I think it's remarkable. Not everyone's so lucky. So well done to Derek. Uh, no, in all, in, all, in all seriousness, it's sometimes it, I, I think Derek and I forget just how long we've been working on this. But when you talk about how we announced it at the Image Showcase at San Diego in 2012, I mean, Jesus, that's a lot. I mean, you know, we, the book should have been out and done by now, right? If we were keeping to any kind of schedule. This is not really my day job. My day job is as a screenwriter. I'm a, I'm a film and television writer by trade. That's how I pay my bills. And that's how what I have to prioritize uh, my work on. But the reality is most of the work for me on the script was kind of already done because as you rightly say, I originally wrote it as a spec script back in, let me think, I think around 2002, I think, or 2003, I first wrote the script. Uh, that was actually the script that first got me a manager in Hollywood and got me represented and got my foot in the door, but we never made the movie. And I moved on to the next project and the next project and kind of got my career going. But, you know, stories that you love, you know, never really go away. They always find a way to kind of stay with you and tug at you and say, hey, what about me? What about me? We were going to tell this story. And I, it became clear that while we might not do it as a movie, there was something structural. There's something kind of weirdly episodic about the way that the script is structured. It wasn't done deliberately this way because it, was it wasn't done as initially for an episodic medium. It was done for a feature film. It wasn't like it was done for television or anything. But there's something about the way the script is structured between first act, second act, third act, that there's like big surprises at the end of act one, big surprises at the end of act two, and then big surprises at the end of act three that it occurred to me that breaking this down into kind of, you know, quarterly, uh, four monthly arcs might be a really good way to, to tell this story episodically and kind of keep the reader, you know, on tenor hooks, you know, wanting to see what was going to happen in the next issue. So I started playing around with the idea of how to do it as a comic, very quickly became aware of the fact that I didn't know anything about comics beyond you know enjoying them as a reader i'd never made one um didn't know what i was doing and um just kind of reached out to Derek as someone whose work i admired i love transmetropolitan i love his style he's got a very particular style which i really really like and uh Derek, i'm sure he gets a lot of these requests and i was very fortunate that he responded and Derek liked the idea right away. And I remember did he did a couple of early sketches that sold me that, oh my God, this is the guy to do the book. But at that point on, I wasn't willing to compromise and go do the book with someone else. I really wanted to do it with Derek. It then became an issue of just kind of waiting for Derek to clear his plate because, you know, he's he, as, a, as an artist, he's obviously in great demand. And I'm very grateful to Derek that even though he's been so busy over the years, he's always found time to come back to this and do a couple more pages here and there whenever he could. Um, and uh, and put it together. And that, that's essentially why it's taken so long. Now that Derek has finally kind of got his head above water and is able to commit to the book full time, it's coming along really, really nicely. It's quite a ride. I mean, even in the time that uh, after I met Gary and then we got to be friends and I came back around and said, hey, are you still open to doing something with Oliver? He said, no, I haven't set it up yet or anything. And we started that process years ago, but it was also navigating it so we wouldn't end up in a situation where somebody else would come in and say, oh, you got to change the title because that title's no good. Or, 
you need to do this to it so it's more interesting. Like we had a real clear vision of what this was going to be and what we wanted it to be. And partially we could have done it already, but it wouldn't be the book that it's going to be now. And I'm really glad that we were patient for that. And for me in that time, I co-created and did the run on the boys, co-created and and did Happy and a number of other DC and Marvel projects, a run on Wolverine. All of that happened in the same time that we were trying to put this together. So it's it's not because I didn't want to do it. I wanted to do it right. And I'm amazed how time got away. <laughs> but it's worth it because it's probably one of the best independent things I've ever done. And I'm happy now because Image is such a good publisher in the regard that if you have a original idea and you want to see your vision through and not lose your rights and still get the kind of marketing and push that you get from a major publisher, they're uh, they're the best. Yeah, Derek, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna embarrass the company that made the offer back in the day, but around 2007, 2008, we got an offer from a pretty big name comics publisher that wanted to do it, and I was really tempted to do it because it was a big name, and I was like, let's do it here. Like, I like the idea of of doing a book that has you know blank publisher name on it. You know, this would be a, a real feather in our cap to do it with this company. And Derek, you know, who, who has already worked for all the big companies, was like slightly less easy to impress. It looks like they own everything. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. At the time, we were ready to go. And, and, and you know, it would, they obviously would have paid Derek and it would, would have been his full-time job. And this yeah. book would have been out probably 10 years ago. But the offer was just not the right offer. And one of the things that I'm very passionate about is that creator-owned should mean something. Yeah. And there are very, you know, in Hollywood, nothing's creator-owned. Once you sign away uh, your rights to something, if you create an original story. Like for example, I created the Book of Eli. I created all those characters, created that world. But I don't own any of it. When I signed it over to uh, the companies that actually produced the film, they now own all of it. And if they were to make a sequel, they would have to pay me, but they wouldn't have to hire me. They wouldn't have to use me, nor would they need any of my approval for any aspect of it. It would be very difficult for me to, to have any kind of creative control. And in comics, obviously, that, while harder to find, is nevertheless uh, still actually possible. And so I'm kind of arguing with Derek, let's do it anyway, let's do it anyway, because I just really wanted to publish the thing. And Derek kept saying, no, 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 let's wait, let's wait. We'll know when the right offer comes along. And eventually Image did come along, and I'm really, really glad that it did work out that way because now it is truly creator-owned and we do have full creative control. And um, Derek and I have said to each other many times over the years, you know, the planets have a way of lining up right when the time is right. Sometimes you've just got to be patient, and we were patient. I'm actually really glad now that we didn't take that deal back when we did 10 years ago that we waited for Image because I think they're exactly the right partner. What amazed me was that they one of the things that they couldn't guarantee Gary was that he could write the screenplay. And the whole thing was based on his screenplay and his screen credits were only getting better as we were getting closer to a deal with. And I, and that was just so illogical to me that like, why wouldn't you want Gary to write? The yeah. Screen? That was the crazy it's thing. It was like screen. the project had started as a screenplay. Screenwriting is my day job and we couldn't even get a concession from them. Um, that I would be kind of the writer of, of any film version that would emerge. And um, it, this is obviously was pre rogue one and I wasn't quite, as established in the business as I am now, it's just totally crazy. It made us realize that the, the word, one of the things that I learned is that the word creator-owned at a lot of companies doesn't really mean very much. It's like a label that they slap on it, creator-owned. I think all that really means is creator-created. Yes, the creator created this, but they don't actually own it anymore. And that's true at a lot of these big companies. And uh, full credit to Image, they're one of the few companies left in the business that when they say creator-owned, they really mean it. This wasn't the reason why we did it, but if there were ever an opportunity to turn Oliver into a TV series or a movie or your happy meal or whatever it might be, that company that would, would be interested in making that version 
would not go to Image. They would have to come to me and Derek because we still retain all the underlying rights. And that's really important, as is being able to tell the story the way that we want to tell it. Image have been fully supportive of us in allowing us to tell the story that we want to tell. You don't get like a lot of creative notes from us, like we want to change this or change that, or what if Oliver was a robot or any of the kind of the crazy notes you might get if you're developing, you know, the movie version in Hollywood. So it's, for me, as someone who is used to not owning anything that I create and oftentimes having things turned into something quite different from what I originally intended when I, when I wrote the story, uh, working in comics and in particular working with image has really been a big breath of fresh air. Well, I'm glad the day is here that the book's going to be coming out because the artwork is phenomenal. The detail that goes into this is just amazing, and the color matches with it perfectly. So it's a really good-looking book, and it reads really well. And everybody that I've heard talk about it, when they look at the solicit, they go, oh, wow, this looks really good. And they stop, and they look at the sample pages and everything that's been published. So I think it's going to do really well for you, and I think you're going to be very happy with the arrangement that you worked out. Thanks. I appreciate that. It's really the art that makes it pop. And one of the things that is so gratifying about working on a comic version of something is you get to see it come to life almost right away. Um, or in this case, 15 years later. But you know, along, <laughs> along, along the way, you mentioned at the top of the interview that Derek and I both live in the Bay Area. And it, that's an advantage that a lot of us uh, in the business don't have is that oftentimes artists and creators live, um, you know, sometimes in totally different countries. Like, you know, we're on Transmetropolitan, you know, Warren lives in the UK and Derek lives out here. So I don't think, I don't know if there was ever an opportunity for them to ever really kind of sit down and collaborate, you know, kind of head to head one on one. It, it's all done remotely via phone and email. One of the things that was really nice about both living close to one another is that Derek would come to San Francisco or I would go up to Napa and we would sit together for the day and like literally Derek would get his easel out and draw and say, you know, how about this or how about that? And and, and the ability to kind of actually really, truly collaborate in the same room as one another was uh, was marvelous. And I, I actually think more comics should be made that way. One of the things I really enjoy is, and one of the reasons I've stayed loyal to this project, has more to do with working with somebody that I trust and get along with and have a good interaction with. And so, uh, and Gary has always been that person. So what's been really gratifying for me in creating it is I, I love to show him what's happening as it's happening. I'll text a page in progress or if I hit a spot like, hey, we forgot about this thing. How do we work it out? It's a lot of fun to do that. It, it's it's true collaboration where we are, are taking pieces of the screenplay that may not work on the page and we transform them into something that works better as a comic moment because of things you don't think about in film, such as turning a page <laughs> or where the issue ends. At some point in the development of this story, it was decided to add steampunk elements. Whose idea was that? That came to me around 2009, 2010 when I saw it. I went to Comic-Con and I started to see how the genre was exploding. And I'm like, wait, that's Victorian era. It fit perfectly for Oliver in the beginning. I, I have to be respectful, though, because as I got into it a little bit more, I started to understand it's more than just an aesthetic. It's a real genre with a very passionate following. And um, for lack of a better word, there are rules uh, that you need to kind of understand if you want to call something steampunk. So I like to say that I'm steampunk influenced or steampunk inspired, but at the same time, I'm not doing straight up steampunk in this. Yeah, I remember when Derek first pitched it to me, it actually made total sense because, you know, steampunk obviously has, you know, much like this story does, the whole steampunk genre has its roots and inspiration in the Victorian era. And, you know, we're obviously drawing on the Dickensian uh, Victorian era as well. 
And shortly after Derek pitched me the idea, I remember going here in the Bay Area every year, uh, we have something called the Dickens Fair, which happens between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the Dickens Christmas Fair. They take a big um, kind of indoor arena and they basically deck it out and turn it into the streets of Victorian London. And it's really cool. And they have, they have a Charles Dickens and a Queen Victoria walking around and it's a big kind of cosplay. Imagine kind of like a Renaissance fair, but it's Victorian London. And it's really, really cool. I get I like to go there and I get my steak and kidney pie as a, as a transplant from the East End of London myself. You know, it's sometimes the only way I can get some of my foods from back home. And I noticed that actually every year they have a growing steampunk section. You know, it's not all necessarily historically accurate. They have a really cool section of steampunk cosplayers. And that's when it really hit home that Derek's idea was was really quite brilliant because it's it's just another of it was kind of a pre I thought I was terribly clever to be marrying the Victorian era with a more futuristic era. Uh, and it turns out, of course, you know, the steampunk guys have already been doing that for a long time. And so Derek's idea was to kind of bring some of that sensibility visually into the uh, into the world. And like, he's right as well. It's not just like it's not off the peg steampunk. It's steampunk influence. Like it's futuristic, but it's not shiny or gleamy. It looks kind of what I call retro futuristic. It's look, it looks kind of forward and back at the same time. And that makes total sense as well in the post-apocalyptic world, because a lot of the technology, a lot of the architecture, a lot of the stuff that's been built in the world has been kind of repurposed and rebuilt from the ruins of a world that was destroyed. And so it made total sense to me that the steampunk vibe would be compatible with that. Derek, have you read any steampunk? Like I said, I'm a little ignorant when it comes to like novels and things like that. I know enough about it to know how little I know. What I like to think about with Oliver is I like to think of it as an alternate timeline rather than saying it's the future or a certain time in the past. I like to think of it as an alternate timeline. But you do know London because you've gone there to take pictures. <laughs> yes. Not as well as Gary, but I love London quite a bit. And the nice thing about having the time and taking breaks in between the development of this is that the amount of research I've done to make the book look authentic is coming through in the final work. I think it's impressive that you traveled there to get photos and not just take them off the internet. I did the walk that I draw in the opening of issue one. I actually did that walk, not not off of the freeway, of course, because they it's quite a long walk, but uh, the walk through uh, Trafalgar Square, I looked around and tried to get a 360 of what that would look like. So whatever drawing angle I put the figure in, the backgrounds would be destroyed versions of what's actually there. If you live in London or you know London and you're reading this, it'll feel good and authentic. It'll feel real to you. That's true. It certainly passed my smell test as someone who was born and raised there. And Derek really did make the effort to go to London and and kind of recreate the steps of Oliver's mother in the uh, in the opening pages of the book. And that's part of the reason why I think, you know, not just to Americans who who would look at it and go, yeah, that looks kind of English. That that look, you know, kind of has that verisimilitude. It, lo it looks sufficiently authentic to me. But also, so I think to people that know London and live there would also look at it and go, oh, yeah, someone someone did their homework here because this is uh, looks pretty accurate. And it's also, I think, partly due to Derek's style anyone who's familiar with, with Derek's art style you know he, he draws in a lot of detail he's insanely de does a lot of insane detail work and so that's the kind of thing where if you're going to be authentic and you do highly detailed work you'd better be doubly sure you get it right I think it would be easy to do kind of more of a, I see a lot of comic artists too and don't get me wrong I like their style it's appropriate for the kind of work that they're doing but it's almost more like a sketch it's more kind of broad strokes Derek works in such specific detail I don't know if he could have made his style work with the level of authenticity that he was going for if he hadn't actually done that degree of research. I'd like to know from each of you why Oliver is more relevant today 
than ever before. I think, you know, what's interesting about it is when something sits around for a long time, you worry that it's actually going to lose its relevance. Everything that you create is a product of its time. And I originally created Oliver shortly after the turn of the millennium, you know, and there was a, there was a, there was a little bit of post-apocalyptic. I mean, see, it, it seems funny now to talk about it, but you remember at the time we were all worried we were going to get sent back to the Stone Age at, at the stroke of midnight uh, with Y2K and everything. And I don't know, I think there, there was a larger desire to kind of tell a post-apocalyptic story. I eventually did scratch that itch with the Book of Eli, but for some reason, uh, we've always fantasized about our own destruction. That's just something we seem to really enjoy doing as a human species. I don't know why. Maybe it's a cautionary tale. Maybe it's something, maybe it's meant to scare us. Maybe post-apocalyptic fiction is like our new version of the ghost story, like the cautionary tale ghost story, the horror story. Um, I've certainly always been attracted to it. And around the time that I created it, it seemed... I don't know if it seemed terribly... T- Again, I, what I liked was the timely connection between what felt like a futuristic world and a, and a historical world, that, that they both spoke to similar themes. I think that at the time, we were worried a little bit about, uh, you know, we, as we always have been, about the haves and the have-nots. And the, you know, this, is before, this is prior to the financial crash of 2008, but, you know, we were already kind of thinking about the concept of the 99% and the 1%. And um, what's interesting in Oliver is, you know, we created this entire, basically this underclass of soldiers that we genetically create to go fight in this terrible war to, to, you know, to protect us. And when the war is over and the soldiers come home, we don't really know what to do with them. They're, they're suddenly surplus to requirements. We created them only to fight in a war. The war is over. So what are we going to do with you? Why do we need you anymore? And so they just kind of, they, they just kind of shove them away into the irradiated ruins of cities like London, which, you know, people can't live in anymore because, you know, they've been bombed to hell by nuclear weapons. The, the former soldiers still can because they were genetically engineered to withstand radiation and biological and chemical weapons. That's just how genetically they've been bred to be kind of stronger than regular humans. And so we throw them into these forgotten slums of, of the cities and try to forget about them. And I think there is something kind of timely about that. I think there's always been this idea that and maybe it is more timely now than ever. Both of these ideas that there's a great... Social divide. This is something that Dickens obviously talked about in a lot of his books. There's a great social divide between rich and poor. It's almost even though you live in the same city, it's not like you're living on the same planet in terms of the opportunities and the comforts and, you know, just your general quality of life. And that's something that I think comes across in the comic. And also maybe there's something there a little bit about how we should treat our veterans better. You know, every other week I'm reading a story about, you know, how veterans are having their benefits slashed and people who very bravely went away and fought in wars come back and don't even have access to kind of decent medical care. Uh, and it's shocking and it's and it's disgraceful. And I think there's a little perhaps a more specific argument that's being made there about how we should, uh, you know, people that engage in tremendous sacrifices and tremendous bravery to protect us uh, should be treated a hell of a lot better than they are when they come home. And that's something that Oliver, I think, talks about as well. I 100 percent agree with that. The veteran aspect of it, I thought, <sighs> it appealed to me in the beginning when I was first reading the screenplay and, and thinking about how we would shape the book. Uh, when you're dealing with a clone army, which is something that at the time we first uh, started on this wasn't as well known, but the idea was how do you draw distinct characters when they're clones of one another without losing their identity? Because each one of them have a very different personality, the main cast around Oliver. And the thing that I chose to do and that Gary was supportive of is that I gave them all individual wounds. Just because they're clones doesn't mean they would be, it's kind of like twin, if you've ever known a pair of identical twins, they're never really quite identical. Maybe one eats more than the other one does, or maybe one of them got sick and, and now looks differently. Or and again, if you get wounded in a war, uh, those wounds would be 
random. So Oliver's father is missing an eye. One of the, the guy who's his rival is has a horribly scarred face and is missing an arm, has an amputated arm. These things make them look different, but it's also a reminder of what they've been through. So that gives them a context for why they're hesitant to rise up against the people that put them in the situation. They are uh, a little PTSD and they're dealing with that. So I wanted to bring that element in there so that their wounds and that their experiences were obvious when you see them. Yeah, that was really a stroke of genius on Derek's part. It was actually partly kind of a, a great solution to a practical problem, which was that because they were clone soldiers, um, I really liked the idea that they should all basically, like, like when they come out of the pods, you know, when they're freshly created, they basically all look the same. They're all essentially based on kind of one generic model. So like, you know, they're all Bruce Willis, basically, is like one way to imagine it. Like in the, if, if we did a movie version, every character would be played, not in the whole story, but in the in the early part that takes place in London when Oliver is adopted by this kind of adoptive family of uh, genetically engineered soldiers, they, they are all essentially played by the same actor and with some visual trickery, you know, some visual effect that you make that work. The problem is how do you possibly track all those different characters when they all look and sound like Bruce Willis? And I mentioned Bruce Willis simply because, you know, they're bald. Uh, they don't, they, you know, they're just genetically, they don't have hair. There's no need for it. It's one of the things that's been kind of genetically engineered out of them. They're all bald, uh, but they all look the same. So how do you differentiate them? And Derek came up with the idea of, well, let's give each one of them a distinguishing scar or a wound. So one of them has an eye patch, one lost an eye, one has, you know, a terrible burn mark along the side of his face. One is missing an arm, as Derek said. That gives you the very, very quick, visual signifier a visual identifier so that you know that the guy with the eye patch is prospero and the guy with the burned face is a different character and so forth derek rightly said it's not just a solution to a practical problem it's a constant reminder that each one of these soldiers gave something like no one came back whole every single one of them is wounded or injured in some specific way that allows us to both differentiate them and hopefully relate to them a little bit as, as more as real, you know, because they all come back wounded. Every time there's a picture of one of them in a panel in the comic, whether it's Banco or Prospero, any of these characters, you know this guy lost an eye in the war, or he lost an arm or he was horribly burned. They all have a story to tell and they don't necessarily specifically tell their stories, but their faces tell the story. And I thought that was a really, uh, it's one of those kind of great eureka light bulb moments where you solve a practical problem, but also add some creative depth to the comic at the same time. The first issue goes on sale January 23rd, and readers should pour over these very carefully because I understand there are hidden clues, and I've looked at a lot of the detail, and there's a lot of little Easter eggs in there too, so people should read very carefully. I did a different interview where somebody asked me, like, what, what are some of the things that we should uh, pay attention to? And I, I am loath to give too specific an answer because... Uh, we work very hard to layer surprises and twists and reveals and, and unexpected things into the story, but also to make sure that when they happen, they don't come out of the blue. That if you flip back to issue one or issue two, you go, oh, I see where they set that up. And so I don't want to draw anyone's attention to anything too specifically because that might help give away the surprise that's going to happen, you know, later down the road in a subsequent issue. But that, yeah, that's the one piece of advice I've given to everyone. And, and Derek's kind of made this more difficult because he puts so much detail in every panel, even in the very first panel of the watch face. It's not necessarily a clue to a story we reveal later on, but it's like there's a very small kind of visual, uh, just a thematic tie to something that will be revealed later in the story that, that's visible, even in the watch face on the first panel that you don't necessarily notice right away. But if you pay a lot of attention, or if you're the kind of person that likes to kind of like put together, here's every Easter egg in all of it. You'll have a lot to keep you busy, I assure you. And this is 12 issues. In four issue arcs. So we'll have four issues, yeah. little break, four issues, little break, four issues. So kind of act one, act two, and act three, basically. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to that. Do you have time for some fun questions to ask all my guests? 
Absolutely. All right, guys. What do you each like to do for rest and relaxation? Gary. I like to watch The Price is Right. (laughs) (laughs) I get why you're laughing. It sounds like a silly answer, but it's something that I grew up on. I've always enjoyed it. I love The Price is Right. It comes on 10 o'clock in the morning here every day. I record it and we watch it towards the end of the day. After my, my daughter comes home from school, she loves to watch it. She loves to play the pricing games. She's actually very, very good at it. She, when, when they next have their Children's Day episode, she really wants to go on, and I suspect she would win the whole showcase because she's become surprisingly good at playing these games. Um, but we watch it together. It's, it's light entertainment. It's fun. I often say that if I could have any job in show business, I would be the host of The Price is Right because you're just constantly surrounded by people every day who are having like the most fun day of their lives. Like they're winning cars, they're spinning the wheel. They're just having a great time. Everyone's like hugging you and freaking out. Oh my God, I got called up. Come on down. It just seems like it would be a really fun job to have. So that's my answer. Okay. How about you, Derek? I play guitar. When, when art became my job, music became my art. So I'm not terribly good at it and I don't really seek out opportunities for other people to listen, but it makes me happy. And I like to sit outside and get a little fresh air. That's probably the most relaxed I get. Is there a kind of music that you like to play? Yeah, I mean, I, I, just the stuff I grew up on. Um, I love Tom Petty and, you know, a lot of classic rock songs from the 80s and 70s that I grew up on. I like learning those because it's almost like dissecting uh, how it works, like getting under the hood of a car. When you can play a song, you understand it in another way. There you go with your level of detail again. <laughs> <laughs> It's just ingrained in you. <laughs> it's just how my brain works. Sometimes I think that's why music is great because you have to focus on it. You can't do anything else when you're, I mean, I guess other people can. I've seen musicians on stage handling a lot of problems that I don't know how they do the song and keep playing because I have to fully focus in order to play a song. And what's nice about that is it makes everything else go away for a little while. I have to just be there in the moment playing the music and remembering what the next lyric is, what the next chord is. And if I can do that and get through that three-minute process, it feels like I've been away on a vacation. Thinking back to a birthday that you had, a favorite birthday, what was special about that birthday? What is the memory of that birthday? I hate to sound mercenary, but when you're a 10-year-old kid, birthdays are just judged. They're all based on, like, what do I get, right? Like, what am I getting? <laughs> and I was 10 years old. E.T. came out in 82. Isn't that right, 82? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I was. So I was 10 years old and I badly wanted a BMX bike because you remember the kid. I, I, I think that movie sold more BMX bikes than anything. <laughs> was that was that just in the UK or was that a big deal here as oh, well? No, like everybody huge. wanted a BMX bike after ET, right? I think they were already huge. That's like actually why they made it into the film, but it didn't hurt it by any means. I think we in the UK, we were a little bit behind the BMX craze. Um, it's a lot more open land to go riding around it. I think it got a lot of kids into into BMX bikes, and I badly wanted a BMX. And so I uh, I pestered my parents about it constantly. And then I, I remember coming downstairs on my birthday that year, and uh, there was a red and I remember it specifically. It was a red and yellow uh, BMX bike that I was absolutely thrilled out of, and a lot of my favorite childhood memories were spent riding that BMX. That would probably be my favorite. I wish I could tell you something like more heartwarming or life affirming but it was really just i got this really great present that i really wanted because when you're 10 years old that's all you give a shit about (laughs) (laughs) that's true how about you Derek? this is gonna sound disingenuous but i promise you it's true i just turned 50 and um on the 10th this past month uh, i had some friends come up from la that i didn't expect to see and we had a really nice dinner and just people around it was one of those grounding moments where Everything felt really good 
and I like the fact that this book is coming out after all this time and you know, I was surrounded by friends and people that I love. It was very um, humbling and grounding to recognize that in being half a century old, uh, I'm doing something right. So I would say this last birthday was my favorite. Thinking back to middle school, 12, 14 years of age, somewhere in there, what posters and pictures did you have on the bedroom wall? Uh, I had all these fantasy posters. I had Frank Frazetta posters. I had Boris Vallejo posters, Star Wars, E.T. All of that stuff was just everywhere in my room. And I remember specifically, I had a Boris Vallejo Empire Strikes Back painted poster that he did as a Pepsi giveaway or a, yeah, some kind of promotional tie-in for the film. And that just blew my mind. I To this day, like I, my original love for artwork and wanting to be a professional artist really came back down to Frank Rosetta and Boris Vallejo posters that I wanted so badly, and Richard Corbin's amazing poster for heavy metal. I wanted to paint and be a fantasy painter. I found some of these early attempts from that era. <laughs> I had to learn to draw first, and then I never went back to painting. That's how you have all this detail now in your work. <laughs> just trying to learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. How about you, Gary? You know, what's interesting is it maybe illustrates just how little I've grown, but a lot of the stuff that I had on my on my um, bedroom wall when I was like 10 or 12 years old, I, st I have the same shit on my office wall now as I look around here. <laughs> yeah, not all that stuff. It's all the same <laughs> stuff. <laughs> It's Star Wars. It's uh, Time Bandits, which was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. I have the map. When I was a kid, I um, tried to do my own version on construction paper of the Time Bandits map, if you remember the map from the movie, this beautiful, beautifully illustrated map. And um, I started a Time Bandits club with my, some of my school friends, and we had this map that I helped make. And uh, years later, I just paid a shitload of money and bought a really beautiful version of it and put it in a frame, and I still have that hanging on my wall here. And uh, let's see what else. Yeah, Last Starfighter, that's still on my wall. I had a version of that from when I was like 10 or 12 years old. What well, would have been about 12 or 13 because that movie came out, I think, in 84. Um, and I still have a version of that on my office office wall here. So I'm not sure if what this says about me, if I haven't really grown at all or if I'm still a child at heart. I'm going to go with the second one because it sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gary, if you were stuck on a desert island and you can only have one book for pleasure, what would that book be? You know, in England, we have a whole show that's based around this question. Did you know that? It's called Desert Island Discs. No. It's on BBC Radio. It's been running for, I think, about 50 or 60 years. And it's called Desert Island Discs. And pretty much everyone who's anybody has been on it at some point. If you're a celebrity or someone uh, who is well-respected in arts and culture or, uh, you know, or just, just sports maybe or well-known, just you know, like a person of note, considered like a rite of passage to eventually get asked to go on Desert Island Discs. And they essentially, the reason it's called Desert Island Discs is it's really for your favorite pieces. Of, like, what are your favorite pieces of music? Like, if you're going to be stuck on a desert island, what would you bring with you? And they, and it's mostly music. They also ask you, like, you know, for your favorite dish, your favorite book, your favorite, you know, movie and things like that. And so the question was for me, it was um, favorite, was it favorite comic or favorite book? Favorite book, but it can be a comic too, if you like a trade or an OGN. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But can I have the whole set though, not just the one book? Can I can I cheat and like have the, yes. whole, the whole run of them? Okay. I've allowed sets before, and that book has been mentioned before. That was the book that probably more than anything else I owe my career to because it was the it was the first thing that really kind of opened up my imagination and made me think, wow, like you can create really really crazy things and people will love them, and there's really no no limit to the craziness of the things that your imagination not just can dream up, but you can actually write down and show to other people and blow their minds as well. Hitchhikers did that for me. Probably owed my career as a writer to Douglas Adams more than to 
uh, George Lucas. I owe them all something, but probably Douglas Adams more than anybody else. I don't know if I ever would have inspired to go away and be, be a writer if it weren't for him and his books. And you, Derek? Uh, I have a really hard time with questions like this because I'm a notorious hoarder of things like books and music and toys. And so to say, what's the one? I don't know. You know, the moment Gary said Douglas Adams, I'm like, I haven't read all the Douglas Adams there is to read. You know, <laughs> so I wouldn't want to piggyback on his answer and go, I think it's that. But I, I think if I could have a complete collection, since we're uh, getting that cheap. I would go with a complete collection of everything Kurt Vonnegut wrote. That probably would have been my second answer, actually. No wonder you guys work together so well. <laughs> <laughs> now, this question is not based on a BBC show. If someone were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? That is a BBC show. Oh, get out, no, really? I'm, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's, called Desert, it's called Desert Island Action Figures, and it's been running for about 50 years on BBC Radio. No, I'm just joking. What was the what was the what was the question? <laughs> if a toy company were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? Well, if they were to make one of me, it would probably be more more accurately called an inaction figure. <laughs> and the accessory would probably be some kind of large couch or recliner. <laughs> the variants would have different choices of fabric for the recliner. Yeah, kind of, yeah and, okay. a uni- and, and a universal remote. Okay. <laughs> what do you think, Derek? Yeah, be my guitar. Yeah. In a sketchbook. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? Beverage of choice. I mean, I really like, so I gave up drinking alcohol about 10, 12 years ago, and I've been teetotal ever since. And I've never so, forgiven him. <laughs> well, I know, and, and it's, it's sad because Derek and I, Derek actually, and, th- and this just goes to show how long he and I have known each other because I haven't taken a drink in about 10 years. But I have very fond memories of Derek. He was the one who first got me into uh, truly good bourbon. And uh, we used to have what we, what we would call our Knob Creek nights where we would sit around and uh, watch The Empire Strikes Back and get super drunk <laughs> and have a great time doing it. But then at some point, subsequently to that, I realized that I, uh, it was time for me to kind of say goodbye to getting drunk all the time. And I quit it. And then I became a big coffee drinker. So this is kind of a tricky answer because coffee is my favorite is is my favorite drink. Not necessarily the best drink to relax with because you know it's just going to jack you up. And I don't like drinking decaf because it just tastes like dirt. Um, <laughs> so you know what I had the other day that I really like and I should drink more of it because it's the holiday season. I had a really good cup of hot chocolate. That would be my inaction figure. The, the accessories would be a good recliner, a leather recliner, a universal remote, and a steaming cup of, of hot chocolate. With or without marshmallows? You know, I can take or leave the marshmallows. They just kind of melt and be, kind of become all gummy and weird. Uh, you know, they're not, and they always end up kind of floating at the bottom. It's hard to get them out of the bottom of the cup when you're done. So maybe marshmallows for dunking, but like them floating in the top. I always feel like that's a bit of an affectation that looks better on the box of hot chocolate mix than it actually works in real life. Yeah, you don't want to clean that cup. That's a pain in the neck. No, it's gross. It's all, they're, they're, like I said, the marshmallows get all gummy and gooey and sticky. Derek, how about you? If it's beer, I like Guinness. If it's bourbon, I like Knob Creek or Elijah Craig. And then I love a really good red wine. And living up in wine country, I get exposed to a lot of them. So it would be like the book on the desert island. If you wanted me to tell you what my all-time favorite red wine is, I'd have a hard time doing that. But I quite like those. So those are my three. Those are all good choices. And it's funny you should bring one of those up because just before we had this interview, I was flipping through a catalog that I got in the mail. And they have soap. Irish stout soap. Stout soap. I am not kidding (laughs) It is made with small batches of two whole bottles of Guinness Extra Stout. 
you can smell like a brewery now. <laughs> yeah, it's just wasteful. It is. I'm like, no, <laughs> no. I can't no, imagine because you'd be super, I'd, I'd you'd like be super clean, but everybody it's, would think you're an alcoholic. Exactly. Yeah, you, you get out of the shower at 8 o'clock in the morning and you already smell like you've been drinking all day. <laughs> well, if you want to smell like you've been drinking and smoking, they have a bourbon and tobacco soap too. I am not kidding. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Last question. What technology that we no longer use every day do you miss the most? You know, it may be it's outdated, a good one. but you do say, oh, I kind of miss that. Like, I mean, like, for example, some people are like, oh, I like the old typewriters. What do you like? I mean, I would never go back to it because, my God, like, how do we ever survive the era? But I, I do miss the old clicky clacky feel of writing on typewriters. And in fact, at one point, a couple of years ago, I downloaded an app for my Mac that played the clicky clacky keys and even had the, kind of the bell carriage return on your keyboard. <laughs> and so you kind of got the feeling. And in fact... You know, Tom, I don't know if you know this, but Tom Hanks is a typewriter obsessive and he collects them, collects vintage typewriters and is obsessed with typewriters and only will only write on a typewriter, like an old fashioned one, uh, and actually released an iOS app some years ago called Hanks Writer. And it essentially does basically that. It turns your keyboard into an old fashioned typewriter and goes clickety clackety. And it's a very, it's a very satisfying tactile sound. I think like in general, that would be my answer. You know, I, I miss the tactile feel of things like, you know, touchscreen phones and everything now being controlled with your voice or being controlled by gliding your finger over something is magical. And I think it's made life easier in general, but I miss the tactile feeling of like a good clicky button. You remember, you remember the old micro switch keyboards mm-hmm. that computers used to have that have like a specific mechanical click. You can still buy them like grognards like me that miss that clicky clacky feel can still get them. And I miss the tactile feel of like a good, satisfying button press because buttons are going away. Everything's now is being controlled through touch, uh, you know, glass touch or through voice. I miss the satisfying feeling of button press under your finger. You know, it's funny when you use a phone, a uh, smartphone, it still says dialing. You're not dialing anything. You don't have a <laughs> yeah, rotary. Yeah, I mean, you, know? you think it's interesting. You think about a lot of the icons, the iconography that we have for things. Like, you know, when you save something, you know, it still looks like an old floppy disk. Or mm-hmm. when you dial, or I'm, I'm literally looking at a couple of things right now. I'm looking at uh, a couple of icons on my Mac. Uh, the one for FaceTime, when you call someone, it's an old handheld landline receiver. And my mail app, is a postage stamp. Now, I still recognize what those things are because I'm old enough to have used them when they were still very popular. But like, when's the last time that you picked up like a handheld receiver on a landline or even stuck a stamp on an envelope? I mean, these things are going away. And so it's kind of fascinating to me how the old ways of doing things continue to be preserved in the iconography of the new way of doing things. How about you, Derek? Do you have something that uh, you miss that we used to use? I got to say, I got a soft spot for cassette tapes. My my 17-year-old son got all excited because when we were cleaning up the attic, we found a vintage Walkman, and he really wanted to, like, get it working. And I dreamed of the day I would have the device that I have. I actually quote Gary often uh, because... We were having a conversation once, and Gary goes, I get so sick of people telling me, where's my flying car? And he holds up his iPhone and goes, there's your flying car. And he's absolutely right. That there's so much music and stuff that I have all these albums and everything that I can have on my phone, and I love it, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. But making mixtapes was a very intimate kind of personal experience, and I put so much love and time into like 
what would go between songs. I found a way to get movie quotes in between songs on a couple cassettes. And, and then I would do artwork. And then I'd give them as a gift. And it was like I really made something for somebody. And it doesn't have the same feeling with like a mixed CD. And even CDs are kind of going away now. So if there's something I miss about that. You know, you have to kind of listen to it in a row. You have to listen to it the way it's been planned out. It's kind of why I think people are going back to vinyl because I still have vinyl and a vinyl uh, record player. And it's kind of beautiful to go and listen to an album in the way it was intended to be heard rather than jumping around or, you know, making your own mixes. So I'm kind of at odds with myself right there. But yeah, I, I miss cassette players. I miss cassettes. You know, it's funny, Derek, if you go, I, I went to Target the other day. And the very first thing that they have out front in like the items that they're promoting was an old Walkman style cassette player and a bunch of cassette tapes. Crazy. It's, I think, I think guardians <laughs> of the galaxy brought it back. One of the tapes they were selling was the awesome mix from oh. guardians and the cassette player looked a lot like the one that he has in the movie, but it was a working cassette player. And they had like a bunch of hit, you know, like dark side of the moon and bad out of hell and a bunch of like, you know, classic rag thriller, a bunch of like classic records that have now been re-released on cassette tape. But I'm with you. I actually really, really miss making those mixtapes. Let's see. I'm going to pull up my iTunes right now. I have 6,403 songs on my iTunes right now. And I, I suspect that's not even that many compared to what a lot of other people have, oh like God, real God. you know, music files. Derek probably got a lot more. Probably more than I ever owned when I was a kid, all my, all my different albums and cassettes and CDs. I miss the days of making cassette tapes, mixtapes. There was kind of an artistry to it because you had to find a way to get the right number of songs on each side of the tape in order to kind of maximize the tape but without any of the songs cutting off. And there was also, Derek, I don't know if you ever did this, but did you ever, did you ever record songs off the radio? Yes. And, that's and, you and you had to get it so that you didn't get the DJ. I found old cassettes that I had, like where um, I wanted the greatest American hero theme, the believe it or not, and I had to wait for the show to come on. It was back in the 70s. It was pre-VCR. So I had this cassette player my father had. And I had it all hooked up with the record button ready to go, just waiting for the show to start and praying to God like my sister wouldn't come in and talk over it. <laughs> I did that. I would record the monkey's music off the TV from the shows. So I'd hit yeah. my little cassette player and put together a monkey's mixtape. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I made a Christmas mixtape off the radio when I was in college. And I made an 80s rock mixtape for a party and i still have all of them <laughs> excellent like they were like works of art you could woo a girl with a good a proper mixtape yeah well gentlemen it has been an extreme pleasure speaking with you both and having lots of fun with these fun questions and oliver comes out january 23rd not to be missed gary and derek thank you so much for being on creator talks thank you chris it was a lot of fun talking to you yeah, thanks for having us. I really enjoyed it. Well, I certainly enjoyed the interview, and I hope you did too. I always love the fun questions because we learn new things and more personal things about the guests. I don't have a better name for that segment right now, so if you have one, hit me up on Facebook or Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. I want to thank new listeners and returning listeners. The audience keeps growing. Together, we can do great things in 2019. You keep listening spreading the word about the podcast, and I'll keep producing the show. It's free content produced on a weekly basis out every Thursday for your listening and learning pleasure. In the weeks ahead, you will hear from new publishers, some you may not have heard about yet, who have creators you are familiar with working on projects. Also, I'll have creators on the show you may not be familiar with, but you are familiar with the titles they have worked on and certainly the publishers of their work. On next week's show, a creator with their first published work through a publisher that has been around for over 30 years 
and supports creator-owned ideas, joins me. She lives in my home state, too. Lila Gwen will join me to present her first comic book being published through Dark Horse Comics, Bad Luck Chuck. And she is working with one of my favorite artists and a guest on this show, Matthew Dow Smith. I tell you, when Matt is on a book, I'm buying it. So please join me next week for that interview with Lila Gwen. Are you enjoying the Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age stuff I'm posting on Instagram as well as Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod? I'd like to know, so share your ideas and thoughts on the book or item I'm posting every weekend. Do you remember it? Do you have one? What are your thoughts about it? What does it mean to you? I always appreciate your feedback and input. Please tell folks about the show. Share it with a friend. It is on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Alexa devices, and also on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. It's free. Don't miss a single episode. And once again, thanks to my sponsor, The Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So until next week, you be good, be nice, play well with others. Let's each do our part to try to make this a better world. And please recycle. No, I'm completely serious. Let's try to make it a cleaner world, too. For Creator Talks, This has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.